What strategy? And why is it important? Well, from an organization's perspective, strategy is a planned approach to achieve an important outcome or a set of outcomes. At least that's my narrow definition. But tell you what, we'll let today's guest, Professor Jeroen de Flander, do a much, much better job of defining strategy for you. Jeroen has founded the Institute for Strategy Execution and has more than 45,000 weekly readers of his blog. He's a best-selling author, he's a business school professor, and he's co-owner of The Performance Factory, that's The Performance Factory, a research and advisory firm delivering strategy training worldwide. He's got some great tips for you today on how to get people interested in your expert brand. So listen up. This is episode 66 of the Training Business Podcast. And welcome to the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Every week we bring you exciting news and interviews with training business experts and training business entrepreneurs from around the world. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. Here's your host, Mark Garrett Hayes. Hey, welcome to the show. My name is Mark Garrett Hayes. It's a pleasure to have you back again this week. If it's your first time here, this is the show for training business owners, for training business professionals, people like you and I all around the world. And the premise or goal of this show in every episode, every single Thursday, is to help you to start to grow and to scale your training business, irrespective of where you are on that journey. The kinds of people who find value in the show, according to feedback, I get all the time are people who are trainers, organizational psychologists, freelance training consultants, freelance trainers, whatever the job title is. If you make a profit from helping people to be the very best they can be through your coaching and training programs, well, this is the show for you. If it's not your first time here, welcome back and thank you for your continued listenership and loyalty to the show. Now, before we begin today's episode, can I ask you, have you listened to episode 62 of this podcast with Matt Dixon? who is co-author of the best-selling sales book called The Challenger Sale. Over 500,000 copies of that book sold. It's something I read at least once a year. Fascinating topics in there. And in that episode in 62, Matt reminded us that your chances and my chances of selling training and coaching programs is significantly higher when we're able to teach our prospects something they don't know, perhaps about their business, about the competition, about the industry, and then tailor our sales pitch to them on the basis that we understand their business strategy and are comfortable discussing how our training products, our services, our coaching will help them to meet and execute that strategy. So coming back to my question today, what is strategy? Well, there's no one better to tell you all about strategy execution and the art of performance than Professor Jeroen de Flander speaking to us live from Brussels this morning. Jeroen, good morning and welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. Happy to be here. So you're calling us, or rather speaking to us, live from Brussels this morning in Belgium. That's correct. For uh, once I'm not traveling, so uh, happy to be home. Okay. Well, look, I was uh, really delighted to have you on the show and I'm glad that you accepted uh, our invitation. And the reason is you've written a couple of books which have really uh, raised eyebrows and attracted lots of interest. So those are, uh, as a quick um, preliminary preview of the topics we'll cover this morning, um, Strategy Execution Heroes, The Execution Shortcut, and then we'll come to the book which has come out this year, which is all about the art of performance. So first of all... um, who is Jeroen de Flander? Well, I'm uh, I'm raised as a as a strategist. I worked uh, a long time for a company called Arthur D. Little, the oldest strategy consulting firm in the world. 
But then I became surprised that all those nice strategies that we developed for clients ended up in drawers. So I decided to uh, focus a little bit more on, okay, what happens once you have finished that nice PowerPoint? And uh, so my area of expertise is what I would call turning turning PowerPoints into practice, also known as uh, strategy execution. Um, I do that from different angles. Uh, I'm a professor. I, uh, I teach uh, at uh, several universities. I'm also a guest professor at, at London Business School, for example. Um, I, I have my own uh, consulting company called the, the Performance Factory, which will celebrate its 20th anniversary next year. And I also write books. Uh, because I find it important to um, to share knowledge. Uh, it's something I like to do. And uh, yeah, I also travel a lot teaching um, the concepts of strategy and strategy execution to uh, to a broad audience. Right. So somewhere in there, you've also got some free time. It doesn't sound like very much free time. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you're extremely busy. Um, so coming to the first book, The the Idea of Strategy, and I've read a couple of books on strategy. Uh, inevitably, many people have. Um, what is strategy and how would you define that? Well, Many people go overboard when they look at strategy and uh, look at it way too complex. The, the, the core of strategy is actually basically uh, to make what I would call a big choice. So um, Minsberg, uh, one of my favorite strategists, once said, strategy is nothing more than a pattern in a series of decisions. So basically a strategy for an organization is... Uh, is identifying what I would then call a finish line um, or comparing it with sports. It's basically figuring out the sport that you and your team are going to play in the next four to five years. And ideally, it's a sport not too many other people play. So you have a chance of, of winning. Um, so that's basically the core concept. And Everything we know from Michael Porter and uh, the Blue Ocean INSEAD uh, IDs, those are all tools and instruments that will help you to make that choice in the best possible way. Right, right. Um, so it's the tools very often that are complex, but, but the concept of strategy is actually very simple. It's, it's to make a choice. And whether you're a company of one or a company of 200,000 employees, the, the concept of strategy remains the same. Yeah. Um, so you, you mentioned briefly, um, I think, Blue Ocean Strategy. That was uh, by uh, Jan Kim, wasn't it? And Rene Mauburn yes. at, at INSEAD. Um, do, do you think that strategy is something, because both of you, both Jan Kim, Rene Mauburn, are professors, you're a professor. Is that something that, that people perhaps are afraid of or they find daunting, the concept of strategy? Because it sounds lofty. It sounds perhaps... Um, something which is elevated, uh, perhaps it's something that doesn't concern uh, people who are at the operation level. Sh should we be really focused and aware of, of an organization's strategy when we're working with it or working for it, maybe perhaps as consultants? Well, I think it's important that we, we have to demystify the concepts. Uh, I once did a campaign uh, in Belgium for the government, uh, and, and, and the core slogan was, strategy is not a dirty word. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we, we 
we often stay away from it because we think we don't need it. When we're a small company or when it's a big company, we say, well, it's, it's, it's the CEO who will, who will focus on that. But actually a strategy, figuring out what you're going to do and exactly what you're not going to do is really important. And one of my discussions I had with, with Michael Porter, who is basically the, the founding father of, of many strategy yeah. instruments we know, mm-hmm. I asked him after a session, I told him, Michael, what is now the, the best possible strategy tip that, that, that you want to share, um, but that people don't really know? And his answer was, it's basically the word no. Basically, the, the, the most important element in strategy is to identify what you're not going to do. And a company like Apple, for example, one of my favorite quotes from from Steve Jobs is, we at Apple are as proud on the things we do as on the things we don't. So a very important exercise in strategy is to identify what are the clients we're not going to make happy and what is the service and the products we're not going to offer. Um, So it's it's all about focusing and uh, and, and making that choice. Um, and, and Porter also said in the end, um, yeah, I, I probably made like a like a thousand strategy exercises over my over my career. I think he's now in his uh, seventy five or so. Um, and he said, well, it was always possible to identify the yes, but uh, when you look down the road three or six months later, it's the no that creates the problem. So a very important tip that I've picked up over the years, and, and it's always one of the core exercises I do when I work with a client, is to make what I call the no list. And what are the five things you're not going to do in the next three years? And once you have that list, it's much easier to focus on. It's not fun because, uh, yeah, servicing certain clients or, or not, it, it's, it's not that much fun to do. Um, we, for example, at the performance factory, at a certain point in time, we identified, well, we are not going to service the really small organizations. Uh, and it's tough because when you get a call from, a, from, a, from an SME uh, that, that want to get involved into a nice project, uh, well, basically, you have to refer them to somebody else uh, because that's the choice that you've made. So replace the word strategy with choice and you will come a long way. Uh, identifying the, the list of no's. So the idea being that if you're listening to this and you run a, a consultancy, you, a training business, um, it's tempting to to say yes to people when they come to you and say, can you deliver a program on leadership or, or resilience or customer care? Whereas actually your long-term interest lies in finding out the things that you will not do and, and say no to and therefore focus on particular things. And focus has been explained to me, I like this, as follow one course until success, F-O-C-U-S. Follow one course until success. That's that's a very good definition, although you never know if it's going to be successful, but I no. think that following, <laughs> following that particular road is very smart. And I, I think, yeah, I also run a consulting and training business, so I know how hard it is to say no, but I've learned over the years, so we've, we've now been in business for 20 years, that... Uh, we, we became really successful. The more we said no, the more we became successful. Because by saying no to things you know a little bit about, um, you create time to train people on topics you know a lot about. And, uh, and we have, for example, one program which is called the Masterclass of Strategy Execution. It's one program. We've been running it for six years. And um, we used to have 
seven or eight different masterclasses. Um, and maybe we did one masterclass maybe once every two years. Now, since we only have one, we run it pretty much uh, twice or three times a month. Um, so we've become much more successful by, by eliminating the things we're not really perfect at. Was that a tough decision to, to make, to say, right, we're not doing these programs anymore, they bring in income, but we think we're going to focus on this particular one and market accordingly? It is very difficult because you, you, want, to, you want to keep making money. And the, the first effect of saying no is that uh, it, it, will hit, uh, it will have an effect on, 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 on your income stream. Um, the, the trick I always tell people is that it, it should be a process. For example, we had seven programs. We didn't go from seven to one overnight. But uh, yeah, we basically looked at, okay, out of the seven programs, which one is the, the least successful mm -hmm. uh, or the farthest away from the core business of strategy and strategy execution? And, and let's eliminate that one first. And then we eliminated the second one, the third one. So it's, it's basically a process that you have to put in motion and uh, not an overnight um, lever that you, that, that you have to pull. Right. Okay. So your first book then, Strategy Execution Heroes, what were the findings or the main findings from this book? Well, the main finding of the book is um, that 40 to 60% of your strategy potential gets lost on, on the way. Mm -hmm. So, um, which is pretty amazing where you see that people try to gain one or two percent on the sales side or the marketing side or the log logistical side but there is in, in many organizations um, a black box which is called strategy execution uh, where a lot of the, the, the strategy potential that is available in an organization doesn't get realized I always say it's a little bit like the the Belgian soccer team um, on, on paper we're number one in the world, but there is always something that goes wrong, and we've never won a championship ever. That sounds like that hurts. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you see now in the, in, 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 in the preliminary course towards the, the European Championship, mm. we're gonna, we have a very good score, but if I would be honest and rate the chances we have of, of, of winning next year, um, it's, yeah, it's, it's in the execution where a lot of the, the, the great potential is lost. That's basically the core message of the first book. And it helps you to figure out um, where you have the biggest uh, holes in your organization. And for example, uh, a lot of strategy gets lost because we don't have uh, the right communication process in place to translate what we have identified in the PowerPoint and translate it to the, the heart, the heads, and the hands of the people. Mm. So in the first book, the Heroes book, also the reason why we call it Heroes because you, you have to go a little bit against the flow. Uh, a lot of the misconceptions in organizations, it's, it's, it's your job to challenge. And, and sometimes in the beginning, you can feel like Don Quixote, that you're fighting that everybody is against you. Uh, luckily, over the years, uh, when I started out 20 years ago, strategy execution was really a niche. And on my first keynotes, I had 20 people in the room. Um, it, it, it was an exotic topic. 
uh, that people didn't really care about. Yeah, I know what that's like. It's an awful feeling. You look at all these chairs are there. You've got coffee, you have a big room, and there's an echo, and there's 20 people looking at you thinking, where's everyone else? Yeah, yeah like, a, like a, a musician that goes for the first time to, uh, to a new country and oh, yeah. five people in the room. So, it's, yeah, I've, I've all experienced that. <laughs> So, uh, but luckily that changed and um, ba basically the, the, the strategy execution heroes book gives you more like an engineering view on, okay, what are now the processes and the tools and the techniques that are available today that you can put in place in an organization to make sure that you have the right infrastructure to, to cascade strategy, for example. Uh, a lot of organizations, uh, I'm sure there, there are many listeners maybe also that, that even train people in performance management. Uh, it's a crucial process in an organization, but if it doesn't fit nicely on your strategy process, um, you lose a lot of um, content. And one of the tests I often do is I compare individual objectives in an organization with the strategy. And what you find very often is that 60 to 70% is not linked to the strategy. Yes, that's true. So. One of the first things that you can do if you want to improve your strategy execution, it's basically working on your infrastructure. That's when you develop a country as well. One of the first things is make sure you have roads, uh, you have an airport, you have a port. Um, so the same is true in strategy execution. The first thing um, I always advise uh, clients or people that consult clients is to, to take a closer look at the infrastructure and see what, what the quick wins are there. So it sounds to me like someone who wants to uh, land as a, as a training provider or coaching provider to, uh, with a company, um, if they are able to understand the strategic goals of the organization and find someone with whom they can have that strategic or business level conversation and not go through HR, which is what many training providers do, but convince someone that um, we can actually find out where the operational day-to-day -day tasks are not congruent or supportive of your organizational strategy, and therefore the, the training or, or coaching we're going to provide can actually help turn that around. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think for um, somebody offering, we, we have partners in, in 23 countries uh, that, that use our uh, methodology. And what we, what we often see is that every training or coaching provider basically has two opportunities. Um, and one opportunity is strategy execution in itself. Uh, most organizations that we meet or that our partners uh, meet for the first time don't have a strategy execution training program. So there is a lot of opportunity to basically train the leadership and the people in first-line managers, second-line managers on, on how to execute strategies successfully. Um, so that's, that's one thing. Um, and... It's basically, I, I call people my age the lost generation. And today, if you go to a business school where I teach, strategy execution is part of the curriculum when you study. And my daughter now, she started at university. She's studying economics. Well, in her third year, she will have a course on strategy execution. I studied there 30 years ago. Uh, there wasn't a course called strategy execution. So there is a big, big, big potential to train and coach people on the topic of strategy execution. Um, to help that uh, process, we've created um, the Institute for Strategy Execution. And that's basically a not-for-profit platform where we offer training material and support 
for all those people out there, the trainers and the coaches, um, yeah, to become certified, um, like you would have with a company called like PMI, Project Management Institute, or so it's basically creating a body of knowledge to help trainers and coaches around the world to train their clients in a crucial topic. So that sounds like something you've um, you've uh, you're ahead of the curve in, so to speak. You've you've come up with the idea of not just focusing on strategic execution, but you've now created a body called the Institute for Strategy Execution and a, a global accreditation body. Um, is that something that, that has kind of helped you to to shine in the sense that uh, when people think now of strategic execution, they think of you, they think of Jeroen de Flander, they think of the performance factory? Um, I think the Institute um, didn't really serve that purpose. Um, okay. I think with the Institute, it, it really helped... Um, sharing knowledge with like-minded people and offering them a professional a professional way of giving their skills a boost so that they could transfer it to to their clients um the thing that helped me to shine and to create my platform um are the books which really helped um and it's also blogging um i started out six or seven years ago with uh, yeah 10 people following me. Uh, I, I have today close to 50,000 weekly readers. And um, yeah, it's I've learned over the years, and, and I'm sure the listeners um, will, will experience that as well. It's not enough to know your content, but people also need to know that you know the content. Um, so part of your activity in growing your business should not be directly finding clients um, that would be interested in your content, but it would also be making sure that you uh, show that you have a certain expertise in your niche. And um, it takes time in the beginning, I know. But uh, if you continuously, I write, for example, every Friday, and I have been doing so for seven years, and I've not missed a single Friday um, except on a holiday period when I've announced it up front that I was that I was traveling or something. I think it's that consistency and that commitment uh, that people appreciate. Um, and over time, by doing that, it, it becomes a sales channel uh, on its own where people will reach out to you and uh, and ask for help. Um, so it's 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 basically a question every entrepreneur has to ask: How much effort do I put in sales? And how much effort do I put in marketing? Um, I've learned that a 50-50 approach doesn't work. So I, if I look at successful trainers or consultants, it are either people that have an 80% sales channel and don't do a lot of marketing, or they have an 80% marketing channel and they don't do a lot of sales. <laughs> if you try to do both, you just run out of time and you can't deliver anymore. That, that's the Pareto principle again, isn't it? Yes. Yes. So I've decided early on in my career that I'm not a very good salesperson, but I love content. I love to write. So I've picked early on the, the route, the, the, the marketing route, um, but what I would call in an honest way. Uh, yeah, I don't promote myself, but I promote content that I believe in. And uh, yeah, people like content. If it's good content, they will get come back and uh, yeah, that in itself creates uh, creates a brand. And the reason that we are talking now is that somehow you've picked up my content somewhere, 
and um, yeah, and that way we're we're discussing. By having this discussion, we will reach out to a, a larger audience. Some people will be listening, uh, saying, "Hey, this is interesting content." They will pick it up. So it's like a ripple effect that uh, that, and it gives me great joy. I really like content, so um, it's also a topic I cover in my my last book. Um, it's yeah, if you're passionate about something, it's it's easier to hand it over to to other people. Yes, exactly. And we'll come, we'll come to your next book or your last book as well and, and the present book. But I think that's, that's quite interesting because I'm sure there are people there who think, you know what, <clears throat> I know something extremely well. Um, and I like the idea of beginning my own institute. Um, because it sounds, it sounds, well, prestigious, to be honest. And if it's something that is prestigious and it's something that you feel you know not enough about, you can accredit other people. And, and that's something you've done. You've got um, partners in, I think I counted 21 on the website. Maybe you've got more than that. Yeah, we have 23 right now, but uh, we have to update the website. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and, and was that something straightforward enough to, to find people whom you've certified and then let them loose, uh, if effectively representing your brand around the world? Well, um, we, we, we've, we've known our fair share of, of challenges. Um, so um, I think what we've learned is if you want to follow that route is that you have to be really, really limited on the content. And like I mentioned before, if we would have tried to do this with the seven programs we had in the beginning, it would have never worked. So we, we have one program. It's a two-day program that we that we offer, and we certify people on that particular two-day program. If they afterwards want to make it shorter or longer or add their material, that's all up to them. But it's streamlined to the core, and because we have delivered it so many times, um, it now became really our, our flagship program. And... Um, yeah, that focus really helps also to, to move forward. So my suggestion would be that if you think about certification, really pick one area where you, you have to work on. The reason why it worked, I think, also is because I have been working on my personal brand for quite some time. I think if you don't have a personal brand right now, um, it will become a little bit more challenging. Um, but you could solve that by, for example, um, getting other people involved that do have a brand. Um, if you look at other organizations that develop something, um, we have a board, for example. Um, but the people that are in the board are not what I would call famous people, but uh, very knowledgeable people. Um, I know other organizations that started out something similar that reached out to famous people and got them uh, involved in the board. Um, and, and that created then the credibility. Credibility is crucial. People only want to get certified um, if, if, you, if you are credible. Um, so looking for that credibility is crucial. Universities are another place. I know some other people that have a joint certification program set up with a university that could be that could be another avenue to to follow of course it helps if you're a professor doesn't it to be honest <laughs> 
Yeah. So, so writing books has helped you to establish credibility. Let's talk about the second book now, um, The Execution Shortcut, which looks at people and team dynamics uh, needed in organizations to, you know, help navigate a strategy to success. What were the main findings there in that book? Well, once I finished the first book on, on, on the infrastructural sides, on the process sides, um, I still felt there was a, a missing link. And I started to look at, at human dynamics. If you develop a strategy, you basically need a lot of data and two smart minds to brainstorm and to make that choice. Strategy execution, everybody in the organization needs to be involved. So people dynamic play a crucial role. So I decided to research what are now the main reasons why people stop a strategy. And I call them the bad guys. So I've identified seven human behaviors that kill a strategy. And um, when we look at our training program and teaching program, we, we, we teach executives and people to, to learn to recognize those bad guys in their team. And what, what are now the, the dynamics that really hold us back? And how can we, how can we find them? Um, I'll give you one example. Uh, in communication, there is a bad guy which is called the curse of knowledge. And the curse of knowledge, everybody, and also the listeners, we all have them in, we have that bad guy in our brain. And it makes us overestimate our communication abilities. And so once you are finished communicating your great ID to your audience, you think I'm done, but you basically only reach 3%. And the reason is that. Um, um, there is an American professor who did a fantastic experiment where she had um, a musician tap a song on a drum, but the musician couldn't sing. And then the audience had to guess what is now the song um, that you were playing. And once the musician was finished and she repeated it with 120 different musicians, so it was not related to the, that one particular person, she asked the audience, how much chance do you think you have of guessing the song? And the audience said, well, one time out of 10, they thought, they thought, now we'll know. But when they asked the musician, how much chance do you think you have that the audience will guess the song, the result was much higher. The surprising thing was that in reality, only three songs out of 100 were guessed correctly. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the reason is, and you, you can try it later on, Mark, um, is try to tap a song on, on, on your, your, your desk. Um, it's impossible to not sing in your head. So once you know something, you cannot unlearn it. And ah, the problem okay. communicate is that once you know something, you're going to communicate with all the knowledge that you have, but your audience doesn't have the, the song. So when, when a CEO goes on stage and he says, well, we have to boost our volume, we have to become more agile, we have to focus on our culture, et cetera, et cetera, those are just notes that don't really mean anything for the people in the audience. But for that CEO on stage, there is a whole orchestra playing in the back uh, because he or she had been focusing on that, that particular musical piece for, for the last six months. So one of the core things we have to do is um, realize that we have the curse of knowledge in our brain and repetition doesn't work. Um, and we've, we've picked up from marketing that if you hear a message seven times, we're fine. But uh, the message doesn't arrive if people don't speak the language. 
we have to focus on communication. We all know that communication is important. But the way we focus on communication, we need to rethink. And one of the core things we need to do is to communicate in a different way, and that is by beating the curse of knowledge. So that's just one example. So I've identified seven bad guys that hold your strategy back, and we train people in learning to recognize those bad guys and then put up, um, yeah, let's say, a fighting strategy to, to tackle them. And um, I always say there, there, there are some ninjas running around in every company. You don't see them. They're dressed in black. They're hiding. But uh, once they throw one of those little stars in your in your neck, you, you, your strategy will stop anyway. So very often people are unaware of of the people dynamics that that stop the strategy, and that also impacts the forty to sixty percent of the potential that is that isn't realized. What which the number I mentioned before. So that's the second book. Look for the bad guys and uh, figure out how to beat them. Yeah, that's brilliant. Because I, to answer your question, in case anyone's wondering, um, I came across an article written by you in the British Airways in-flight magazine. And the funny thing is, we had um, an interview with Joellen uh, Gribb, who runs the Impact Factory, a, a well-known soft skills training company in London. And uh, that was back in episode 35 in May this year. And she told us how she began attracting a lot of business through advertising in BA's in-flight magazine. So there we go. So it obviously works. <laughs> Indeed, yes. Yeah. So, th- so the book is called uh, The Art of Performance, The Surprising Performance Behind Greatness. And, and that's something which really interests me because I'm, I'm a qualified coach. So inevitably what... Um, companies are buying when they're buying training and coaching they're not buying the training and coaching itself they're actually buying the transformation that they want you as a training provider or a coaching provider to 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 bring so you know what i'd like to know if i'm asking a question i think representative of the audience is what what can we as trainers as coaches do to transform people and lead them to greatness well i think the first thing at least if, if I explain it from my perspective, so um, for me, every book is a research question where I also try to find out an answer that I find fascinating. Um, and before I started writing, I thought the answer would be talent. I thought that talent would be the, the great denominator uh, differentiating between somebody who, can, who is good and who, who is great. But to my big surprise, when I when I dived into all the research that that is available somewhere, but not uh, accessible for everyone, um, we see that we overestimate uh, the impact talent has. So, uh, I think one of the the crucial things um, we have to do as 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 coaches and trainers is that we we have to demystify the concept of talent. Um, in my perspective, based on everything that I've read, um, only 5% is really born and, and 95% can be trained, developed, nurtured, coached. That's fascinating. It's fascinating. And it's also um, very, um, how would I say, liberating because it, it, it offers so much more opportunity for people than, than, than what you would think. If, if you're born... In my book, I tell the story about Mozart, and uh, everybody thought 
up until a few years ago that Mozart became famous because he has a, a, a well, it's not a condition, but he has a rare gift, um, which is called absolute pitch. So that means that if you hit a glass or a table or whatever, somebody with absolute pitch can immediately say um, what kind of note uh, was played and can reproduce the note uh, very often by, by singing it. And it's less than, yeah, it's, it's very, very few people that have it. So every biography that you read about Mozart that wasn't written in the last 10 years, um, people were referring to this absolute pitch and how it, this talent helped him to become one of the greatest musicians in all time. Uh, Frank Sinatra, for example, also also has had absolute pitch. Oh, did he? Didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. But the interesting thing is that there was one researcher from uh, from Japan who said, "Well, I don't believe in this talent theory," and uh, he um, he convinced the parents of twenty six toddlers to participate in a musical experiment. And guess what? After training them um, specifically on uh, uh, on their hearing after between 16 and 24 months, all those toddlers had absolute pitch. So he was able to train and coach them uh, in such a way that they all had the talent or the gift that made Mozart so special. Uh, and I have found tons of examples um, where when you look at somebody who is fantastic, um, it's not talent that got them there, but it's it's a different dynamic. So the first key message in the book is basically we overestimate talent uh, and we underestimate training and coaching. Um, so that's the first message. The second one is, well, if it's not talent, what is then the alternative? What makes the difference between somebody who is only good and somebody who is great? And if you then dive into the research, there are basically three drivers um, that you can tap into to become really successful. Also, as an individual and everybody is listening, everybody can apply it. Um, and the, the first one is um, you have to find your motivational engine. And it's also called passion, but we like to talk about passion, but most people have no clue where passion comes from. Um, and there is a researcher, and his name is uh, Benjamin Bloom, and he followed 120 people that are in the top 1% of their field. So it's a sculpture, uh, sport people, musicians. And what he found was that all those people, of course, were passionate. But in order to become passionate, they all followed the same path. So the first um, two chapters in the book explain how you as an individual can become really passionate. And it all starts with your interest profile. And um, it's an interesting, I, I don't know if you know your, your interest profile, Mark. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating. Uh, when I discovered mine uh, about 10 years ago, it really changed my life. And, and one of the reasons that we're basically talking now is because I followed my interest profile. I used to be a partner in a large uh, American consulting company, and everybody would say, you've made it. But I didn't really felt uh, fulfilled. Uh, when I did an exercise on my interest profile, uh, one of the conclusions was that basically, Jerome, you're not a manager. You don't get enthusiastic about uh, yeah, guiding people and telling them what to do. 
but you like creativity. And basically, once I knew my interest profile, the idea that I had to write a book sometime before, I, I really decided then, okay, it really fits my interest profile. Blogging, it fits my interest profile. That really makes me happy. So that is what I'm going to focus on. And the more you create an environment that triggers your interest profile, um, the further along you will get because the more you need motivation to push through. Absolutely. Can I ask you, uh, Jeroen, where do you where do people go to find out their their uh, interest profile? Um, there are relatively easy to find. Just go to Google, and uh, the, the the gentleman who developed the test is called John Holland. So if you type Holland test or um, um, uh, something like the Holland code, you can find it. There is a website which is called truity.com. Uh, that's the one I often recommend um, because it's free and uh, yeah, easy to, to use. There is a paying version as well, but uh, very often with a, with a free version, you can, you can start. The interesting thing about this test, for example, is I, I used to live in the U.S., and in the U.S., it's, it's a very well-known test. Um, I often, when I do a keynote in Europe, I ask people who knows their interest profile. There are not that many hands that go up. So, so it's, um, I think we have a, a catch-up to do. And um, I, for example, used it with my daughter. When she went to university, she one day came over, said, Dad, I know I want to go to university. She ordered the book with all the different options. And she said, how in the world will I choose between all these options? We looked at her interest profile, and using the interest profile, we could um, skip 80% of the educational options because they didn't fit with her with her interest profile. Um, in, fact, in fact, it's scary. Your interest profile is more stable than your personality. So it's easier <laughs> to change your personality than to change your interest profile. One of the first things that you should do if you want to become great is to figure out what is your interest profile and see how that fits into what you do. And I mentioned before as a trainer, if you're listening now and you're wondering, okay, should I become more focused on the sales side or should I become more focused on the marketing side? Your interest profile will give you the answer. If you look at my interest profile, I would never focus on the sales side. It's just, it's just not me. Is, is that um, in any way related to um, things like... Um 16 personalities or, or, or type finder, MBTI, that kind of thing. Is that, is that quite close to, you know, ordinary psychometric profiling? Um, you are measuring something different. Uh, 16 personalities, uh, it's based on Jung. Um, yes. Uh, the, the popular version there is called uh, MBTI, Myers-Briggs. That's right. And that's basically measuring your personality and looking at what are now the four quadrants that are easy, most easily available for you in your personality and how can you develop them it's a well-known test it has a lot of merits but it's very different from your interest profile right so after this one of the things i'm going to do today is to <laughs> <laughs> look at my interest profile because i think that makes sense um the way I think of it in my mind, uh, if I may uh, use a metaphor, is, is like a sailing vessel. That your 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 passion, uh, the the why, the why that's close to your heart is like the rudder. So no matter how uh, strong or 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 lengthy the vessel, the, 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 in which you are, you're on the on the sea of life. Uh, 
you, you will always be steered by your passion, or at least you ought to be steered by your passion. That's where your direction should be going. Yeah, exactly. And uh, when the sea gets rough, um, if you know what your rudder looks like and how to use it, you have a much better chance of going through uh, a rough sea. Yeah. Uh, if, if you don't, what you will do is once it gets rough, you go back to the harbor and you wait until the weather gets nice again and then you take a different route. So the, the, the engine that you need, the rudder, is really helping you when things get tough. And uh, they have tested it, for example, with... Uh, people that are studying um, medicine. And it's a long study and it takes quite some time before you become a doctor. They have done a test on interest profile um, and purpose at the start before people even yeah, got their first book. And then they looked at how far do people get. Based on the level of passion and purpose people had towards medicine, they could pretty much predict uh, who would graduate and who would not. And that makes sense, actually, because the people you want treating you are the people whom you think will be relentless in finding out, uh, you know, what can we do to improve this particular area of medicine? We want to just work with people or or have people treat us who are passionate about the solution and not just the actual uh, medical application. Um, I just, I'm conscious of your time here, but you also then talked about um, the necess- necessity of grit. Now, grit, uh, for people who's First language is not English. Grit suggests resilience. Grit suggests uh, determination, keeping on going in the face of adversity. Um, what was the finding there in terms of how important grit, resolve, determination is? Well, as you can imagine, if, if, you, if you travel to the top, uh, you never do it in a straight line and you will run into rough weather. If we go back to the metaphor we yeah. used before. I like that, uh, yeah. Without the engine, um, yeah, you will not have the motivation. But the challenge will also be, what do you do when you really run into a wall? Um, and one of the famous phrases there uh, that people like to quote is from Nietzsche, where they say, hey, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But uh, I found out it's actually not true. Um, and people have the, the wrong um, conception about failure and how to deal with it. So the third part of the book that we, we dive into is to, okay, how do you now deal with um, um, failure? And um, one, just to give one example, um, a good test you can do is figuring out, are you a, an optimist or a pessimist? One of the great findings um, I found was from the American uh, Olympic team. And they launched a, a question, the, the coach, North Thornton, a former coach, asked the question, who should swim in the relay race? Can somebody give me a scientific explanation uh, on, on, on who should I pick? Should I put, pick the best swimmers from the last year? Should I pick the fastest swimmers? Should I pick the swimmers that outperformed themselves in their individual challenge? Who should I pick? And uh, yeah, there were many people that reacted on that question. And in the end, uh, there was one researcher, and his name is Martin Seligman. And he said, you have to pick those that are the most optimistic. And he came up with an, a very um, fascinating experiment where each swimmer had to swim their favorite distance on uh, the Olympics. For example, the 100 meters or the 800 meters. And when they came out of the swimming pool, 
the coach lied to them. Uh, he said, uh, instead of your time, for example, would be, I don't know, 49 seconds on the 100 meters, it's like, like 50, so pretty bad. And then he asked them, in 20 minutes, I would like you to swim again, uh, the same distance, and I want you to beat the time that you've just uh, swum. What they found was that all the pessimists swum worse than even the fake time they got. All the optimists swam faster than even uh, the real time on their first run. And um, yeah, he wrote a book about the topic and he really um, dived into. So if you look at, if you want to improve your grids, one of the first things you need to do is to figure out how optimistic you are. And for example, in sports, I work with uh, the, the, the Belgian hockey team. And uh, when, we, when we work with, um, let's say, the, the new people uh, that, that come to the team, one of the things we test in the first game is, is how optimistic or how pessimistic they are. And uh, we look at the, the core people in the team. And for example, once they get a goal against them, um, before the coaching, the chances that they lose is pretty much gigantic. But once we start coaching those people on, okay, once you lose, you have to um, keep your head up. So don't give in to what your body is telling you. Uh, they have a 60% chance of coming back after uh, a 1-0. That's huge. It's huge, yeah. So one of the things, um, yeah, I also now use it in my coaching with, with executives um, to, uh, yeah, to figure out, okay, what is your your profile, are you an optimist or a pessimist? And the nice thing is, in, in the book, I, 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 there is a famous methodology how you can turn a pessimist into a possi- uh, um, somebody who, who is more positive. So it's, it's not a fact of life, but you can train it. Tell me, I want to know about that one. <laughs> um, well, the short version is that every human being has four lenses to look at reality. And those lenses are colored. When you, in Dutch, we have, I don't know if you use it in English, but pink glasses. So that means that you look at something that is more positive. It is actually true. So what you can do in a coaching is um, to sit down with an individual and learn to identify, okay, what are the glasses that I use to look at something bad that happened to me? And then you have to, there is a technique to learn to, to switch the colors of your glasses. Right. That, that's interesting, yeah? That's really interesting. And it's, uh, in the beginning, it's, it takes some time because you have to re- reevaluate and relive a certain situation. Yeah, it's, it's a coaching process. But uh, after some time, it becomes a habit. And uh, I used to be a pessimist. I was in the, in the pessimist category. And I'm not saying that I'm now the most optimistic person in the world. But uh, yeah, using this technique with my coach, I, I really feel that uh, yeah, it helped me a lot to um, to develop my grit um, in, in in certain areas and overcome failure um, in a better way than than when I would, would not have used uh, used that technique. Okay, well, listen, I'm I think that's amazing because that that's a lovely way to end because a lot of the people that that. Um, contact me following episodes like this uh, tell me that um the 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 content we have speaks to where they are right now and i think one of the things that many people who are 
you know, self-employed as trainers or people who have a small training business or even a mid-sized training business is, is this idea of how do I deal with failure? What do I do when people say no to me? They turn me down. Uh, the competition wins. Someone else gets the training business. They get the, the contract. So if, if we have a strong enough why, if we have a strong enough reason and we're able to look at our chances, and I spoke about this actually in a previous episode, how do you actually deal with, with no? How do you deal with bad news when you've been told that you're not going to win a training contract, that you're not going to be the, the provider for a particular company? How do you psychologically deal with that? Do you, do you sink? Do you use the, the metaphor we used earlier, the one of the boat, or do you actually just hoist the sails and just go forward? Because that ultimately is greatness. It's, it's not the, it's not the occasional victory. It's the relentless consistency. It, it's it's the it's the willingness to get back on the on in the boat. I was going to say on the bike, but I think I'll mix me- metaphors if I say that. So <laughs> stick, with the boat <laughs> stick with the boat for now. <laughs> well, look, the book is amazing. It's been described by Marshall Goldsmith uh, as engaging, provocative. Um, he says this book will lead you to a level of performance you never considered possible. And then Nick Taylor, who is the managing director for Accenture in the UK and Ireland, says it's one of the best bus- business books that he has read in years. So that's really high praise, really high praise. So I'd love to, and we'll talk about this in a separate episode, but I'll talk to you after the after the call now, Jeroen, uh, what we'll do to get some signed copies, which we'll offer readers uh, at a future date of this podcast. That would be great. Thank you. Okay. So thank you so much for coming on the program and speaking to us from Brussels this morning, Jeroen. Thank you, Mark. Bye-bye. Thanks, Jeroen, for your time today. Thank you for speaking to us live from Brussels. And before we go, I think it's worthwhile reiterating a couple of points, really good points, and tips which Jeroen made today in this episode. He mentioned the fact that he's a free online strategy execution training course, which contains 10 hours of content, altogether about 30 lessons. And that, I think, for you and for me, is a brilliant way to give your prospective audience a credible taste of what you can do. Remember what Nathan Barry, CEO of ConvertKit, talked about last week in episode 65? Do you? Well, he talked about the fact that as his email platform is perhaps the fastest growing in the world today, people like content creators like Tim Ferriss and Neil Patel are subscribers to that service, as am I. He talked about the fact that you can use email lists to build a powerful database of interested prospects. Now, you might think, well, it's fine to, you know, use Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. I do too. But ultimately, when someone actually agrees to give you their email address, they've actually confirmed that something you've given them is something they want, it's something they find value in. And thirdly, they're giving you permission to contact them on those topics at a future date. So it's really, really powerful to build a database of people to whom you can reach out via email and get some kind of permission to drop them value into their email box on a regular basis. Jeroen's idea of giving your listeners a free chapter, or your subscribers, I should say, a free chapter of your book or an email course that you have is something you really ought to think about in 2020. Okay, well, that's it for today. My sincere thanks to you for tuning in again this week. Many fine podcasts out there. I'd like to think that you think this is one of them. And you've taken time to listen to this one today. And for that, I'd like to thank you for your listenership, for your loyalty, and for all your support. We'd love you to leave a rating on Apple Podcasts because this helps us to promote the show and to attract the right guests to help you 
on your training business journey. We'd love to hear from you with regards to the kinds of guests or you know ideas which can help you in your training business in 2020 and beyond. You can check out the podcast on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, on Spotify, I think on a couple of other platforms like Google. I'm all the time surprised where the podcast is turning up, but it's lovely to know whichever platform you're on today that you're here listening to us now. We're on Twitter, we're on Facebook and on Instagram, so feel free to check us out and to join the conversation. Next episode is Thursday next. That's episode 67. It happens to be the last episode of 2019. Hard to believe. On behalf of the team, on behalf of Sam, James and myself, a very, very Merry Christmas and a peaceful holidays to you and your family. See you next Thursday. Bye for now. Once more for listening to this episode of the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Go to trainingbusiness.com and subscribe right now to be notified of great competitions, upcoming VIP episodes, and amazing special offers to help you succeed in your training business. See you next time.